All right, we'll say good morning, good morning, good morning. It's an uh, incredible schos, Bar Hashem, to take advantage of the legal holiday a little bit and to learn a little bit extra. I really want to give a very special thank you to Rabbi Shmuel Artman, who Bar Hashem you know, suggested this uh, a number of weeks ago and uh, graciously agreed to go ahead and sponsor the breakfast. And then I want to thank Meshi Abramson, because originally I said no, because I figured, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a short Friday, this so much. And then Meshi said it to me again on, Ereshah, on uh, I don't know, Sunday or Monday. I said, okay, if this idea is coming from a couple of different places, and Akadish Baruch was telling us that we, should, that we should try it. So Baruch Hashem, it's wonderful to sit with the Chavra and wonderful to be able to learn a little bit. And what I wanted to focus on, and really we're going to keep this a, a short shear this morning, because it still is a short Erev Shabbos. What I want to focus on is a really interesting concept that I think continuously comes up within the Gemara, which is Chazal legislate laws, right? Chazal have the power, the Torah gives them that power. Again, th- there's, there's much, much more. The truth is I'm thinking about this now. We may actually maybe even continue this if this, you know, if this is convenient for everyone. Maybe we'll do this again next Friday, Meretz Hashem as well, because this topic is a massive topic. Now, the real first part of the topic is do Chazal have the right to legislate law? And under what circumstances do they have the right to do so? So the truth is, of course, the answer, do they have the right to legislate law? The answer to that, of course, is yes. Where do they get that right from? The Torah itself says, Do not veer. Do not veer from what they tell you right or left. And in fact, the Gemara says in such a powerful way, Mikan, even if Chazal tell you that the right is left and the left is right, we have to listen to them. So Chazal are vested with an incredible amount of power to legislate law. Now, again, of course, the question is, well, who is Chazal? Which rabbinic bodies are vested with that ability? Again, our topics that we're not going to really cover today. But what we're going to focus on is that Chazal have this right. But we also noticed something very interesting. I think this is kind of what, what the way the, the genesis of this is, Shmuel, when I spoke about this in passing a little bit, which is we see, let's say, throughout our journeys in Dafyomi. So we see that there are times when Chazal make a law and they give the reason for that law. And sometimes the reason goes away and so does the law. And sometimes the reason doesn't go away and the law remains. So how exactly do we go ahead and explain that dynamic? So I want to share with you the, the Maramakomos that I gave you today are actually a piece by Rav Herschel Shachter Shlita in his Sefer Eretz HaTzvi. So in Eretz HaTzvi, Rav Shachter goes through this topic in an exhaustive fashion. We're not going to go through the whole piece, but I just want to focus you on parts of it. So it's on page one in your handout, paragraph A. So here he's actually talking about the concept of Dover Shebeminyan Tzarech Minyan Acher Lahatiro, which is the concept that means that in general, when something is legislated by a Beisdin, it requires a Beisdin, a Jewish court, of at least equal number and wisdom to be able to revoke it. So look what Rav Shecht writes. He says, And now again, we're kind of picking up in the middle of a different topic that he's discussing, but we're going to isolate these ideas. In general, when Chazal legislate their laws, they generally institute it in a way that's called the low plug. Low plug means it applies across the board. In other words, we don't make, it truth is any legal system, any legal system cannot legislate laws that are custom tailored to individuals, right? The way a legal system works is you make a law 
And the law applies to everyone, even if your personal circumstances may be a little bit different. So when Chazal institute their laws, they instituted what we call a low plug. Low plug means no distinctions. He says, Even if Chazal instituted their law for a particular reason, and for some reason, the reason doesn't apply, the law still applies. So say, here are competing values. When Chazal go ahead and make a takana, they make an enactment. So their enactment is generally made in what we call a low plug. No distinctions, it applies across the board. Yet, sometimes we find that when Chazal make a law for a particular reason, if the reason no longer applies, the takana falls off as well. So how do we reconcile these two things? It sounds like sometimes rabbinic law is immutable and irrevocable. And then at other times, when circumstances change, so does Takanas Chazal. So how do you reconcile those two things? So he, he says, for example, take a look at paragraph B. Shetamid, kishetiknu Chazal eizot takanos shekzar eizokzera haya lahem tam gadol b'siba chashuva. So this is incredible. Rav Shechter says, firstly, I have to understand something. Whenever the rabbis legislated law, they only legislate when there is an absolute necessity. Listen to this. Because Rav Shechter posits, in unnecessary rabbinic legislation is actually a rabbinic prohibition. What rabbinic prohibition? The prohibition of baltosif. The Torah tells us that we're not allowed to add on to the mitzvos. So I, I can't go ahead and say the classic example, I have four compartments in my tefillin, I'd love to have five compartments in my tefillin, I'm not allowed to do that. That's the Isra of Baltosif, right? I want to add roses and tulips to my Dalit Minim, I don't just like Hadassim and Aravas, I like a little bit of color, right? So I'd like to add that in. You can't do that, that's Baltosif. So Rav Shechter says something amazing. How are Chazal are able to add on to mitzvos? Effectively, we do that. We have a whole body of rabbinic law. The rabbis are only permitted to add on rabbinic law when they feel that it serves an absolute necessity. It has to serve a purpose. It has to serve a real reason. If it's unnecessary, then it's baltosa. Paragraph C. So we'll skip a little bit. He says, look at the last line of the paragraph C. Paragraph D. So here's what's interesting. So Rav Shechter points out, however, there are two different types of rabbinic prohibitions. Two types of rabbinic zeros. There are times when Chazal went ahead and told us why they're doing what they're doing. And there are times that they did not necessarily tell us why they're doing what they're doing. What's a good example of when Chazal told us why they're doing what they're doing? We just had him not filming so long ago. Two day Yantif. Two day Yantif is a perfect example. Good. Another one, a little more recent. We'll actually come back to this. Kzera Durabo. Kzera Durabo. We won't blow shofar. We won't go ahead and read Megillah on Shabbos. On Shabbos, because you might come to carry the Megillah, might come to carry the shofar. So again, there are times Chazal told us you can't do things, and they tell us why you can't. What's a good example of a takana where Chazal did not tell us why they're legislating? 
give you, give you a good example. Kalisha. Kalisha. Right? Kalisha is a rabbinic prohibition to hear a woman sing. Right? Again, there's... I'm simplifying it. Chazal did not explicitly say why that's Asr. Now, now again, intuitively, intuitively, right, I, I, we, we glean our ideas, but I'm just pointing out, like in the formulation of the halacha, Chazal did not articulate an explicit reason. Now you could say, you could tell, you know, maybe because it was, what, it doesn't matter why they didn't, the point is they didn't. So if Shechter points out, you see two different types of rabbinic enactments. Times when the rabbis made the takana, they told us, Rabbah tells us, you cannot blow the shofar on Shabbos. You cannot take Lulav and Esrog on Shabbos. You can't even get on Shabbos. And I'm going to tell you why. We're afraid, you're going to, we're afraid you're going to carry it. And then many other times where the rabbi said, you can't do this, you can't do this, but did not espouse the reason. So Rav Shechter says something absolutely amazing. He explains, he explains, I'm going to skip a little bit because he gets into over here a whole, I, I, I gave you this whole piece because I think it's, it's worthwhile reading. And it's reading, it's worthwhile learning. And I think it's incredibly profound. So if you skip a little bit, go to paragraph I. Paragraph I. So here, this, this is Rav Schechter's primary thesis. He says, uh, So, alright, let, let me tell you the piece that I skipped outside. There is an interesting machlokas when it comes to biblical law of what we call dashinon taimidikra. Do we look for the reasons in mitzvos or not? Do we look for the reasons in mitzvos? And I will say, this is a fundamental machlokas. And often, looking for reasons or not looking for reasons could go ahead and yield a, 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 an interesting decision. I'll give, you, I'll give you the paradigmatic example. The Torah says, Lo You cannot take collateral from a widow. You take, can't take collateral from a widow. Now, why does the Torah tell you you can't take collateral from a widow? What do you think? I don't see no one's used to interactive shiurim anymore, right? I know, I'm sorry. I really, I've ruined this, right? Why, why, why does the Torah tell you you're not supposed to take a ladder from a widow? What do you think? Vulnerable. She needs it. So the Gemara says, what about an Amona Ashira? What about a rich widow? What about a rich, a very wealthy widow? Are you allowed to go ahead and take collateral from a wealthy widow? We'll say, what's the answer? The answer is, it depends, right? Idarshinan time dikra. Do you look for the reasons behind mitzvos or not? If you look for the reasons behind mitzvos, the reason the Torah tells me not to take a ladder from a widow is because the assumption is that a widow is vulnerable, a widow is compromised. So again, the Torah says, don't make her life more difficult. That's if you look for the reasons. But maybe if you don't look for reasons, the Torah says, don't take a ladder from a widow. We don't look at our bank statements, right? We don't know if she's wealthy or not wealthy. The Torah says, don't do it. So I don't do it. So we'll say, how do we paskin? Do we look for reasons for mitzvahs or not? And the answer is, right? Good. It depends. So essentially, what we do is as follows. When the Torah gives me a reason, then the halacha takes the reason into account. When the Torah doesn't give me a reason, then we do not paskin halacha based on supposed reasons behind mitzvahs. So for example, when it comes to Beged Amana, right? The Torah says, don't take out from an Amana. Torah doesn't tell me why. Torah, so because the Torah doesn't tell me why, I just take that as a blanket law. A blanket law, right? That halacha lemaisa, halacha lemaisa, 
I am not allowed to go out and take a ladder from a widow. She's wealthy, she's impoverished. Torah doesn't give me a reason. But there are other times when the Torah does give me a reason. For example, the Torah says that the king, lo yarbelo susim, he's not allowed to marry too many wives. He's not allowed to have too many, too many horses. Why? What's the concern? Shem levavo, perhaps they'll turn his heart. Perhaps he'll go back down to Egypt. So there, interestingly enough, the halacha takes into account the reasoning behind the mitzvah as well. So just keep that in mind. So normally, so when, when somebody asks, Darshinan time with the crow, although Darshinan time with the crow, do we look for the reasons behind mitzvahs or not? The answer really is, it depends. If HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives me the reason for the mitzvah, then the reason could play a role in the creation or the formulation of halachic policy around the mitzvah. But if the Torah does not give me the reason for the mitzvah, I might have a really million reasons in my mind, right? And remember again, like the Sefer HaChinuch advances reasons for mitzvahs. But at the end of the day, if the Torah doesn't give me the reason, then the reason does not play a role in the formulation of halacha. Now, why is this important? Rav Shechter posits that rabbinic law follows the same exact model. Take a look at paragraph I. Like we just said before, Chazal have to have a reason when they legislate law. Right? You can't just legislate for the sake of legislation. Why, why do they have to have a reason? If they don't have a reason, then what do we run into? Baal Then it's adding on to the Torah. So we know Chazal always have a reason. Achein, Birov Pamim, but more often than not, the rabbis did not include the reasoning in the initial text or in the initial formulation of the law. As I called the Tikkun Rabbanon came to Arisa Tikkun, the Hechad Dolo Shaykhatam Lone Exer. So let's listen to this. See, in Judah, Shor Shechter posits, rabbinic law follows the same model as biblical law. Just like biblical law, if there's no reason, right stated, the law applies across the board. If there is a reason stated, you can take into account the reason in the creation of halachic policy around that law. In rabbinic law, this is the same. When Chazal did not include the reasoning for their enactment, even if we know the reasoning, right? I know the reasoning, but they did not include it in their enactment, then ultimately, even if the reason falls off, the legislation remains. However, when Chazal built in the reasoning into the formulation of the law, then in that case, what they're telling us is what? What are they telling us? The law only applies as long as the reason is intact. But should the reason fall away, should the reason no longer be a concern, the law automatically falls away as well. So both say, this is, Adam, what are you going to say? Oh, hold, good. Hold on to that for just a bit. Hold on, hold on. We're going we're gonna to see how to plug this in right now. What's amazing on the scene, Rav Shecht is creating what is a very dramatic, you know, we'll call it legal and also theological construct that essentially there are two different types of rabbinic laws. There are rabbinic laws, I'm say, I just want to be clear. Don't confuse knowing the reason for something versus Chazal stating the reason for something. Rabbi Shechter says that only when Chazal state the reason, explicitly state it, what they mean to say is, we are creating this law 
to address this issue. If this issue is no longer an issue, then what? Then what? Then the law is no longer needed and falls off. However, if they legislate the law and no reason is explicitly stated, even though I know the reason, we know the reason, but if it's not explicitly stated in the formulation, their intention is for that law to remain on the books, even should the reason fall away. And he goes on, he says, this in, in paragraph J, he adds in one very important piece. So we'll say there's another concept of Dover Sheba Minyan, Tzarech Minyan Acher Lahatiro. That when something is created by a particular rabbinic body, how does revocation of rabbinic law work? How does it work? Another rabbinic body of at least equal, if not larger, number and wisdom has to come back to repeal it. Rav Shechter says that's only true when Chazal did not give a reason for their law. If they gave a reason, if the reason no longer applies, the law falls off. The law falls off even without any specific revocation process. Yes? The two-day yantav, was there, was there, was there a reason given? Absolutely. Absolutely. No, because remember again, there's a follow-up there. The Gemara says, even though the reason no longer applies. Remember, I will say, what did the Gemara say? Little Chazara? We do it for, for, for tradition? Or? No. I mean, that's a good answer, but no. Right? There's a concern. I tell them not to be shy. Tell them not to be shy. You guys are really just sitting next to each other. I feel like you, you sprint your neck a lot. Right? Say, so ultimately, again, the Gemara says, what are we concerned about? We're concerned that ultimately, again, there may be future forces that would mess with the calendar and mess things up for second day yantav. So, so, so this is a very important point. So I'll say second day yantav is a perfect example. Chazal told us, you have to keep a second day of yantav in the diaspora. Why? Let's go through this. Why? Why? Because there was calendrical ambiguity. Well, there's no longer calendrical ambiguity. We know exactly when Yom Tiv is. So based on what Rav Shechter is saying, there should no longer be second day Yom Tiv in the diaspora. But remember, the reason why that's not, it's a good example, but it's not a good example is because the rabbis proactively addressed it. And they said, we realize, we realize that the original reason for our enactment no longer applies, but we're giving you now another reason to keep it. And the other reason to keep it is lest things go back to what they were. Because historically, Gentile forces have always tried to mess with the calendar. Right? So there's a concern of tampering with the calendar, in which case, once again, calendrical ambiguity. We did it. We did it. Right? We, remember we did this? So you have to work on yourself. <laughs> Never say it doesn't make any sense to me, right? So remember again, if you look at Jewish history, one of the ways that people have constantly tried to assimilate the Jewish people is by tampering with the Jewish calendar because we count time in a different way. Chazal were concerned, they understood that there are generations of persecution ahead of us and in order to safeguard the Yom Tovim and the calendar, they said, keep the second day Yom Tov in the diaspora. So it was, a, it was really a proactive measure to ensure that nothing ever happens to our system of Yom Tovim. One could say that perhaps Chazal were being a little bit too careful. It's possible that they were being a little bit, they, they were being exceptionally vigilant. So again, a good example, original reason falls away, but at the end of the day, a secondary reason keeps the Takana in place. 
No, different generation, different generation, and that and that's that's a good example of a davar shebeminyan sarchmiyan achar laatiro. There had to be a second gen. Yeah, it was not. I don't know how many generations apart it was, but it was not the same generation. That is correct. That is correct. Remote possibility. You mess with the atomic clock in Boulder, Colorado, over many, many years, which keeps the calendar. So you're slowly shifting the days, second by second. Right. Well, well, you know, again, even in the even in the lunar, even in the solar calendar, you know, the solar calendar is not accurate, right? But I'm saying no, no, nothing to do with twelve o'clock. The church, the church chopped off a whole bunch of years. Right? This is a whole. This is a whole sichsuch, right? This is a whole discussion in terms of the 2022, right? The church, the church fast forwarded the calendar by a number. I don't remember the whole historical piece with this, but there's there's no question that time as we have it is not an accurate portrayal, even from even from. Oh, this is Mamish and Yoni Dioma, right? <laughs> right? 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 Even even from the birth of Yashka, it's not right. It's it's not accurate. It's not accurate. Good, Mamish. Okay, Jose, so listen to this. So, 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 take, so therefore, again, in paragraph J, he explains that even the concept of needing a rabbinic body of greater number and wisdom is only when there's not a reason associated with the law. Because if there's a reason, and the reason no longer applies, then what happens to the law? What happens to the law? It simply slips off the books. There is no additional process that's necessary. Now, I'm saying one more piece. Paragraph K. Watch this. Here of Shechter says something amazing. I'm sure this will address the Gzera de Rabba. Watch this. Watch this. So now, oh, Adam, sorry. Adam, Adam. Gzera de Rabba. So now watch this. So now of Shechter says, this idea that the rabbis have the license to include the reasoning or not include the reasoning that only applies in pure rabbinic legislation. But when the rabbis introduce legislation that uproots biblical law, they must include the reasoning. So, so any time Chazal are stepping in and telling you not to do a mitzvah, they must tell you why they're telling you to do that. The paradigmatic example of that, Gezer de Rabbah. Right? Gezerah de Rabbah. Rabbah tells us, don't take shofar, don't blow shofar on Rosh Hashanah. Don't read the Megillah. I'm sorry. Don't blow shofar on Rosh Hashanah that falls out on Shabbos. Don't read the Megillah on Perm that falls out on Shabbos. Don't take Lulav and Esrig on Sukkis that falls out on Shabbos. And there they say, why? Gezerah, Shema Ya'avirenu, Dalet Amos, Birshos Harabim. And Rav Shachter says, Chazal have no choice. When they are uprooting biblical law, they must include their reasoning. Yes. Sorry, I'm not going to. This is my last question. <laughs> I don't believe you, by the way. I don't believe you. Chicken roll. Chicken and cheese. But he gave, wasn't that right? Gershon? No, it was earlier. It was already the Gemara. Oh. Ofen Chalav. That's rabbinic. That's rabbinic. Did they give a reason? Sure, that's a safeguard for meat and milk. Right. Right? So, but again, that reason still applies. In other words, people very often include fowl in the same category as meat. So if we're permissive with chicken and milk, the concern of being permissive with meat and milk absolutely still applies. 
Right? So in other words, I just want to be clear. There are many times Chazal give a reason. Remember again, but the reason still applies. That's an excellent example. Right here, Chazal are telling us, don't eat ofen chalav. Don't eat fowl and milk. Right? Why? It's a safeguard. People, the Gemara says, already in the Gemara, the Gemara says because people interchange fowl meat very easily. And if you eat fowl and milk, you'll come to eat meat and milk. So Garrett, they set a reason. But again, the reason still applies. And therefore, Allah said so the halacha is still on the books. So say, so now, so now, let's take this and begin to plug this in and just into some examples, just for another few minutes, then we'll stop. So I'll, say, so I'll just point out a couple of things. So remember, Rav Shechter gives us this construct, right? The construct being two levels of rabbinic law. Rabbinic law that comes with an articulated reason, rabbinic law without an articulated reason. Why do Chazal sometimes articulate their reasons, sometimes not articulate their reasons? What's the reason for the distinction? Because they want us to understand when they articulate a reason, they're saying to us, the halacha only applies when the reason applies. But should the reason disappear, the halacha falls off. What mechanism do you need to remove the halacha after the reason falls off? What mechanism? None at all. It just simply slips away. Right? It just simply slips off the books. But when there is no articulated reason, then ultimately, again, that halacha remains on the books, even if the perceived reason no longer applies. Just to understand, where's of Shechter getting this model from? He's really taking it from biblical law. When the Torah sometimes gives me a reason for a mitzvah, doesn't give me a reason for the mitzvah. When it gives me a reason for the mitzvah, halachic policy takes into account that reason. When it doesn't give me a, mitzvah, a reason, halachic policy doesn't take into account the reason. One more piece, whenever rabbis are uprooting rabbinic, uh, biblical law, they must give a reason for their particular enactment. So we'll say, I'll give you just some examples of this. Except when the Torah gives us a reason. In general, load, we pass in load, dashin, and time of dekra, that when the Torah does not give me a reason, I don't describe a reason. But where the Torah does give me a reason, we pass in dashin, and time of dekra. So I will say some, some examples of this. Um, I didn't put this on the sheets, but it was just about outside. Mashkin shenesgalu. I say there's a halach in the Gemara that says that if you leave liquids uncovered overnight, you are not permitted to drink them. And in fact, this halacha is actually codified in Shulchan Aruch. Mashkin shenes galu, if you left liquids open, uncovered overnight, asru chachabim, Chazal said you're not allowed to drink that liquid. So again, I will say a very simple idea. You leave a cup of water on your night table overnight, right? Maybe you wake up, you get thirsty, right? You leave a cup of water on your night table overnight. The halacha as, as expressed in the Gemara is, you're not allowed to drink that. You're not allowed to drink that. What's the concern? What's the concern? Chazal said, what's the concern? Snakes. A snake may come, inject its venom, inject its venom, and chas v'shalom, could be sakana. Shulchan Aruch says, v'achshav she'ein nechashem mitzuyim beinenu mutter. And now that we no longer live amongst snakes, or snakes no longer live amongst us, right? We don't live in places that are heavily populated by snakes, or at least what we'll call venomous snakes. Venomous snakes, therefore, halacha lamaisa, it's mutter. And that's why halacha lamaisa, if you want to leave an uncovered cup of water on your night table overnight, you are permitted to drink it the next night. I one second, one second. How does that work? The Chazal says, we'll say now it all makes sense. Why? Because when Chazal created this legislation of mashkin shenes galu, uncovered liquids, what did they do? They gave the reason. They gave the reasons. This is not esoteric. Right? This is very practical. And they're including the reason ultimately again in their legislation. 
the reason is gone, and therefore again the halacha simply slips off the book. So again, I quote for you Shulchan Arach, Yaradeya, Simen Kuf, Tes, Zayin, Sif, Aleph. See, here you find something amazing. Shulchan Arach quotes the halacha, and then tells us it no longer applies. Yes, Ron? But in certain geographic locations like Jews in Australia, where there are better mistakes that are still prevalent, or in India, so, so this is what's interesting. So remember again, this goes back to kind of remember the low plug idea. That whenever the rabbis make their law, they always make it in a blanket approach. So in general, once you're going to say that for the majority of people, this no longer applies, it no longer applies. Now, is it a good idea, right? If you're a Jew in Australia, Jew in India, probably, probably. But the halacha, technically speaking, and again, it's very important. Halacha, remember, there's no piece of legislation that applies equally to every single person, right? That's why, when, that's why Schechter, Schechter introduced this, and he said, Chazal Institute in a low plug, across the board, across the board. Wait, Bosa, I'll give you another example of this, which is actually quite interesting. The halacha of not eating fish and meat mm-hmm. together, right? Not allowed to eat fish and meat together. So Bosa, here's again, the Shulchan Aruch says, <clears throat> First, I'm, I'll mention here. Yeah, I'll just read you Shulchan Aruch. This again is in Yeradeya. Kuf tes zayin sif beis. Kuf simen kuf tes zayin. So they have all of these good halachas regarding the, these enactments of Chazal about what you're allowed to eat, not allowed to eat. So listen to this. Shulchan Aruch says, Tzarech lizar. Tzarech lizar. Shelo le'echol basar v'dag biyachad. You cannot eat fish and meat together. You can't eat fish and meat together. Why? Be'pnei shekasha litzara'as. The Gemara says, why can't you eat fish and meat together? Because it causes saras. Le- saras literally is translated as leprosy. Right? So whether it's literal leprosy or sickness, you can't eat fish and meat together because it causes sickness. Not only that, by the way, the Ramah says, really, ain't litzlos basar in dag. You really should not even roast fish and meat together. Mishum Because even the reach, right? Even the scent, the aroma is detrimental, right? That's why, again, person's cooking fish and meat in the same oven, they should be covered. Person wants to use a grill for fish and for meat, they really should be kashered in between use. In between use. Mihu bidi evet eno aser. However, the Ramah says, if you ended up cooking fish and meat together in the same oven, it's not aser, right? Bidi evet, it's not aser. So I will say, here we have an, a fascinating example, right? So you're not allowed to eat fish and meat together, and Chazal told us, why can't you eat fish and meat together? It causes illness. What's the kasha? What's the question? Right. It doesn't seem to cause illness. Right? People eat fish and meat together all of the time. Right? And they're just fine. They're just fine. So now, what do I do with this halacha? So interestingly, I'll say the Aracha Shulchan writes, he says as follows. He says that he gives a whole explanation of this as to why it's possible that once upon a time, fish and meat together really posed a health risk, really posed a health risk, and contemporarily they do not. You know, there's a lot of actually literature about this, about potentially having to do with mercury levels in fish during Talmudic times, different things. Our Hashulchan said that very often people would eat fish much later. In other words, that by the time that we would already consider things to be already like a shtikla, what do they call it, uh, spoiled, rotten, it was common to go ahead and eat, eat that. So he says that combination, he gives a whole bunch of reasons. But bottom line, he says, one thing is clear, which is, which is, it doesn't apply today. Right? If, but yet the halacha 
of eating fish and meat today absolutely does apply today. So now we have a problem. Because we just got finished saying that whenever the rabbis give a reason for their enactment, and the reason no longer applies, then what? Then what? The enactment simply falls away. We bolster that. Mashkim shenes gavu. Right? Just one example of that. So along the same lines, fish and meat should no longer apply because halacha lemaisa, it doesn't cause saras. So I will say, so here, each of the Arach HaShulchan quotes the Gemara that says, Gemara Masechus Chulin, Chamira Sakanta Meisura. There is an exception to the rule. What's the exception to the rule? When Chazal legislated something because of Sakana, because of danger, that rule remains on the books, even if, even if the, even if the Sakana, the danger, is no longer there. Now, you're going to think to yourself, one second, that doesn't make sense. What did we just say before? Snakes. Right? Snakes. So I will say, so it must be, and this is fascinating, it must be that there are different levels of danger. Right? Even when Chazal went ahead and instituted the Mashkim Shen Eskalu, the whole snake thing, it wasn't the pshat that everybody's living amongst poisonous snakes. It was enough of a danger for them to legislate. But it's not a high enough level of danger to remain on the books when the primary reason falls off. But the fish meat thing apparently posed such a prevalent danger that even though contemporarily that danger no longer applies, the rule still remains on the books. So I will say, you see something fascinating. So even though we just said before that whenever Chazal espoused the reason, if the reason goes away, the Takana goes away as well. The exception to that is when, when they legislated because of Sakana, because of danger. If it's because of danger, the rule remains there even if this, if, I should say, if they legislate because of prevalent danger, then the danger, then the rule remains even if the danger goes away. But let's say I'll conclude with one last piece. The Ber Halacha, this is incredible. The Ber Halacha, this is in Hilcho Shabbos, Simen Shin Gimel. Simen Shin Gimel, it's the, it's the Ber Halacha in Os Yud Ches. So look what he writes. He says something amazing. So to give you the context, Shulchan Aruch is talking about the definition of a Rishus Harabin, public domain. But what's the definition of, of Rishus Harabin? We learn this in Dafyomi. We learn everything in Dafyomi. It's incredible. It's like one-stop shopping. Everything you want. And if you add in there Mishnah Yomi, it's ridiculous. So I'll say, so now listen to this. So what's the definition of a Rishus Harabin? Rishus Harabin has two, two criteria. Number one, width. And number two, pedestrian traffic. Width is Tezayin Amas, 16 Amas. 16 Amas across. So again, if you imagine that, uh, that an Amas is a foot and a half, so what's 16 Amas? 40 feet? 24, sorry. Right, sorry, sorry, I left the counting. Yeah, sorry, it's good. So it's right, it's right, 24 Amas across. I'm sorry, 24 feet across. So let's call it 25 feet across. So it has to be at least the width of 25 feet and 600,000 people walking there per day. Right, so the Ber Halacha says the truth is, you almost never find a Rishus Harabim Daraisa. Now I will say, by the way, except in New York, right? In New York, Ocean Parkway, you have this, right? This. So I will say, why is this? But this is very important for us because the absence of a biblical Rishus Harabim allows us to do what? Put up an eruv. Remember, an eruv will not work in a biblical Rishus. This is why there's so much contention and machlokas 
about the Erev in Flatbush, right? So again, or the Erev in Manhattan, right? There's so much machlokis about it because there you're dealing with biblical public domains, right? In our, let's say in Baltimore, right? Again, we have, there's, there's an issue with the Beltway, there's an issue with the Beltway, which is a potential issue in extending the Erev out, but at the end of the day, all of our areas over here, even what we would consider to be Ricerstown Road, you know, Park Heights, again, these do not satisfy the criteria of biblical Rishus HaRabim. Sabo say, listen to what the Ber Halacha says. He says, I don't understand. According to this opinion, that the truth is, a biblical Rishus HaRabim requires the particular width and the pedestrian traffic of 600,000, which means you virtually never have a biblical Rishus HaRabim. Lama ein token shofar barashashana b'shabiz bizmanenu. He says, why don't we blow shofar on Shabbos contemporarily? Kevan deleka roshos harabim, velo shayach shema ya'avirenu dalet amos. What a kasha. What a kasha. As Rabbi said, this is now all of our worlds colliding together. So the Be'er Allah, by the way, you see, by the way, Rav Shechter is not the first person to espouse this shita. In other words, the Be'er Allah is coming from the, from the perspective like this. Why don't I blow shofar on Rosh Hashanah? Oh, sorry. Why don't I blow shofar on Rosh Hashanah that falls out on Shabbos? Why not? Why not? Gzeira de Rabbah. Rabbah came along with his base in rabbinic legislation. We don't blow shofar on Rosh Hashanah that falls out on Shabbos. Lest you come to go ahead and carry it, Dalit Amos, in a public domain. Great. What say? What type of rabbinic enactment is that? What type of rabbinic enactment? Right? Reason. What happens when you have a rabbinic enactment with a Reason. The reason falls away, then what? Then what? Then so does the enactment. If that's the case, says the bear halacha, we should blow shofar on Shabbos today. We should blow shofar on Shabbos. There's no real biblical rishus harabim. We should blow shofar. Rabbi say, how does how does the bear halacha? And he says, Sarachim, I don't know why we don't blow shofar today on Shabbos. Wild. But Rav Shechter answered, Rav Shechter, because you remember again, Rav Shechter, now you can't answer the Behalacha. How can you answer the Behalacha? Why don't we blow Shofar on Rosh Hashanah even today, even though the reason is no longer applicable? Why not? Because remember again, when it comes to uprooting biblical law, the rabbis have to give a reason. The inclusion of a reason by rabbinic legislation that, that uproots biblical law has nothing to do with the previous paradigm. So since Rav Shechter, since we have, two, we, have two, we have two paradigms. There are two constructs. There's typical rabbinic law. Typical rabbinic law, which usually comes in the form of additional legislation, right? They're, they're legislating something that the Torah did not. In that realm, there are two ways to formulate that law. You can formulate it with a reason, without a reason. If you formulate it without a reason, it's on the books until another rabbinic body of equal number of wisdom comes along and repeals it. If you go ahead and you give it without, with a reason, then halacha if the reason falls away, then what? Then what? The rule falls away as well. There's another construct. And the other construct is when the rabbis legislate rabbinic law that uproots biblical law. In that case, they must include a reason. But the, why? Why? Because without a reason, then what? Then what? You don't have a right to uproot biblical law. They have to include a reason. But the inclusion of a reason by rabbinic law that uproots biblical law does not put that law into the category of typical rabbinic law that has a reason. That rabbinic, right, rabbinic law that uproots biblical law must have a stated reason in order for Chazal to have the license. 
but that doesn't make it into the type of takana that if the reason goes away, so the takana goes away as well. So it turns out that there are really three categories of rabbinic. So I will say, therefore, again, I'm sorry, before I get to that, that's the answer to the Ber Halacha. See, the Ber Halacha, this is fascinating, the Ber Halacha looked at Gezeira de Rabbah as a typical rabbinic law that has a reason. So if the reason is gone, the law should fall away as well. But, he was, but what he didn't understand, and what Rav Shachter articulated, was that, no, this is a separate category. When rabbinic law uproots biblical law, you have to give a reason for that. And the inclusion of a reason in that type of law does not automatically lump it with general rabbinic law that has a stated reason that falls away if the reason goes away. As soon as it's about biblical law, the reason must be there, but that law remains on the books until when? Until when? Until a subsequent rabbinic body comes along and repeals it. So it turns out, Abba said that in Dine Dirabanan, we actually have three categories of halachas. So category one, is Chazal legislating additional laws without a reason, right? If they legislate, write laws without a reason, then what's the halacha? What's, what's its legal status? Remains until when? Right, until a subsequent rabbinic body of greater number and wisdom comes and would want to repeal it. Category one. Category two, Chazal go ahead and include a reason for their law. What's the status of that law? Reason falls away. Then what? Law falls away, except... Sakana, right? Except when they legislated something because of prevalent danger. And category number three is Chazal instituting rabbinic law in order to uproot biblical law. The paradigmatic example, I will say there are a couple of examples like that. We also saw it, by the way, by Hashavas Aveda Zakin Ve'enu Lefi Kavodo, that although you're not normally allowed to look away from a lost object, if someone finds a lost object and it's beneath their dignity to take the object, they're allowed to look away. So Chazal are able to legislate uprooting biblical law as a side, by the way, the only time Chazal could uproot biblical law is when? Is when? With a shave v'altasa. Right? Chazal could uproot biblical law by telling you not to do something. They cannot uproot biblical law by telling you to what? Yes. To do something illegal. Very, very important distinction. But in any event, when Chazal legislate to go and uproot biblical law, then what's the halacha? What's the halacha? They must include a reason, for that's the reason for that. They allow uprooting of biblical law to begin with. But the inclusion of a reason does not subject that law, does not subject that particular law to the normal methodology or procedures of rabbinic law with an included reason. Which means that when Chazal institute rabbinic law to uproot biblical law, even though they set a reason, just because the reason falls away does not automatically mean that the halacha falls away. Baharaya, even though today we really don't have Rishuyos Harabin Da'oraisa, and therefore technically speaking, you should be able to blow the shofar on Shabbos, take your lulav and esrog, read the Megillah, halacha said that law will remain on the books until a basin of larger number and wisdom comes and repeals it. Yes? Say that once, did they? Right. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know if there was. I mean, it, it seems to be, when you look at halachic literature, it seems to be such a rarity, right? That amount of pedestrian traffic and that with, I, I don't know, I don't know if in Surah, Pompadisa. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I, right, that would be an interesting point, right? If he made it even with Rosh Hashanah Daraisa, I don't know. Yeah, 
Excellent, excellent, excellent point. So remember, there are other types of rabbinic enactments which we're not getting into right now, which is what's called, for example, I'm just pointing out is a hora'asha. Hora'asha is that sometimes Chazal will allow you to do something that is actually normally illegal, that is normally illegal and normally prohibited in, in an extenuating or desperate circumstance. So correct, maybe we'll do that next week in Mirat Hashem because there's a number of fascinating examples that is all but right. We are not addressing that at all. Sure. Right. So, so the, the, it's all right. So uh, once we get into the weeds, like, what, what I didn't get into, by the way, I, I wasn't thinking about swimming. The truth is, you know, this also comes up is medicine on Shabbos, right? Taking medicine on Shabbos is like a big discussion about this because there, Chazal said, the reason you can't take medicine on Shabbos is why? Srikasani may come to grind. Many people can bring down, nobody knows how to make their own medicine. Right or whatever you're usually grinding for yourself is usually illegal anyway. You know what I'm saying? So like, you know, you know, so so, so uh, you know, so so I, you know, so again, yeah, maybe you know, maybe what we'll do is maybe we'll continue this topic into next week as well, getting into some of the more practical examples, and then again, even there, we'll get into the distinction between medicine and vitamins. Swimming is going to be another great example. Clapping, clapping, right? Chazal saying you're not allowed to clap on Shabbos because Shemi Yitake and Kleishir. Again. Maybe, all right, you know what? Emirat Hashem, next week we'll continue with examples of this and kind of drill down. And we'll see, by the way, as we go into the examples, we'll begin to see even more exceptions to these rules as well. Jacob, you had a question? I did, yeah. So, is it, given that a lot of these tikkunas were made back in times of Chazal, and the only way to uproot them is with a, a basin of greater number and greater wisdom, I'm assuming that today it's just, it's just not possible to uproot them. Look, number you could get. Number is never a problem. Wisdom, it's always complicated to understand how you gauge wisdom. Could you assemble a body like this? I have no doubt you can. But what it would require is unity in Amisa. You know what I'm saying? What you're talking about is bridging everyone together and essentially forming a Sanhedrin. Right? There have been attempts over the years to forge a Sanhedrin. I don't think the problem is number. And the problem is not even wisdom. There are many, many, many great minds in Klal Yisrael. The problem or the challenge seems to be one of achdus, right? If we can get a Sanhedrin together, there are many things that we could accomplish on behalf of Klai, so it would be incredible. So I don't think it's an impossibility. It may be impractical until Moshiach comes, but certainly not impossible. Because rabbinic law is always modeled after rabbinic law. Called the Tukun Rabbanon Ke'in Daraisa Tikkun. The Gemara tells us, the ra- where did the rabbis model the legal system after? Or where do they model it from? How do, how, do you, how do you know what the construct is? Rabbinic law always mirrors biblical law in its form and in its substance. Because more often than not, the role of rabbinic law is to bolster biblical law. That's all. It's not like a separate independent legal system. It's an appendage of biblical law. The, right? Kaddish Baruch Hu vests Chazal with the power, and Chazal's job is bolster the biblical system. So any rabbinic legal system will always mirror the biblical one. That, well, it's, it's, it's not for granted. It's, it's understood in the license for the rabbis to legislate law. In other words, why do they have that right to legislate law? That right derives from a desire to sustain biblical law. So it makes sense that whatever rules govern biblical law, govern, govern rabbinic law. You know, you're asking, like, is there a specific, like, specific source for that? 
I don't know. I, I'd, I'd have to. I'd have to. I, clearly, you see, the Rav Shechter is taking that, you know, for granted that it's that it mirrors. I don't know if there's a source for it. I, I'd have to look. I'm sorry. You can't add, but in other words, but how does that mean? Jesse's saying, like, how do you know that means that the mechanism for establishing rabbinic law is the same? Because again, you're, you're, you're focusing on the idea of time and decra. The reason, yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I think, I'm, to me, it just sounds intuitive, but I could look if there's a source for it. I don't know offhand. I don't know offhand. But I feel correct. Correct. That is correct. It, there, there's, there's, a, there's a tension there, and the tension there is preservation of Yamtiv, and but a side, a side effect of that is putting on Tefillin. There's a whole discussion amongst the Rishonim, so I'm actually discussing whether or not one should put on Tefillin on Yamtiv Sheni. The reason we don't do it is because it's understood if you put on Tefillin on Yamtiv Sheni, you totally undermine the whole system of Yamtiv Sheni. But Enoch and Ami, it's, it's not a... See, as opposed to Gzir Daraba where the intended consequence is to uproot biblical law, by secondary yantib is kind of just a, what's the word? Um, a secondary or incidental, an, an incidental impact. All right, Chef, yes? Is the prohibition of returning to the Israeli biblical or rabbinic and how does it fit into the framework? So this is a big, big discussion. So the answer is the prohibition is biblical. Prohibition is biblical. Now, again... The prohibition is mentioned two places, both by individuals, but primarily by the king, right? The Torah says that the king should not buy too many horses, should not have too many horses, because ultimately, again, horses, I guess in biblical times, primarily came from Egypt. So it is a biblical prohibition. Now, there's an incredible amount of rabbinic literature about when does it apply to whom does it apply? The Rambam lived in Egypt. Many great people lived in Egypt. There was a massive community in Alexandria. The Gemara itself talks about, we just, actually, we just had this. We just had this, right? The, the, the Beis Amikdash of Chanyo was in Alexandria. The great shuls of Alexandria, where the Gemara brings in as an example. I remember again, but from Sukkah, the shuls were so big that the guy back there stand there with the flag, telling everybody when Tanzibar, Baruch Hu, Shmo, and Amen. Complicated discussion. Complicated discussion. So, so some saying ultimately the biblical prohibition is only to literally retrace the steps of the Jews back through the Sinai Desert to Egypt. Others saying that again, perhaps it's only a prohibition for the king, not for other people. Major machlokas. Major machlokas. Right, we'll stop over here for today. We will continue with Hashem next, next Friday. And what we'll do is, we'll, I think we're going to stay with this topic. I think next week, right, is next Friday the legal holiday also? Yeah. Good. So we'll continue next Friday, what we'll do is we'll focus on examples. So we'll cover swimming, we'll cover medicines, I don't know, anything else anyone want to cover? What are some other good examples of this? Oh, kidneyos. Kidneyos is a good one, actually. We could do kidneyos as well. Right, kidneyos. All right, so kidneyos, swimming, and medicine. Mirat Hashem next Friday. Shkayach, everyone. A good night of Shabbos. Oh, anyone needs to bench? Yeah. Only want to leave? Do you wash, Adam? You shame on the